Okay, well, it's really great to be here and to, to share some of this stuff with you. Um, like Ian's mentioned, we're in the Book of Acts. We're in our series, Mission Unstoppable. And um, today is titled, One Way or Another? Question mark. Um, so that's what we're looking at today. So Ian's read the passage to us. Um, and I think that today's passage is a really exciting one. It's really troubling. It's really controversial. It's really confrontational, and it's really something that is not at all popular today. Let me just uh, open it up, the one that had it already set in, Ian Tuck. So um, let me just find it. If you've not got a Bible, do grab one so you can see what uh, we're looking at. And then if you think it's different to what I'm saying, you can come and chat to me afterwards. Or you can come and chat to me afterwards. Anyway, that's up to you entirely. Uh, You can heckle later. Um, so, yeah, we're in Acts chapter 4. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1095. So Peter and John, they get arrested for preaching Jesus and his resurrection and for healing a man who in the previous chapter was lame from birth. And from this chapter, we know that he was 40 at least when he was healed. So he's really, really very old. Um, Peter and John then spend a night in the cells and then they're brought before a kind of political, religious, aristocratic council. I've been struggling with that word all week. I know it's aristocrat, but I will at some point say aristocat, which was the the film, wasn't it, of cats. Um, So please excuse that mistake when it comes. So they're like a council and they kind of find them guilty, but not really of a crime. And then they're released um, I think, should these things be common experiences for Christians today? It'd be interesting, wouldn't it, if we got arrested and put in jail for, for preaching Jesus and his resurrection? That'd be interesting. Um, and that's kind of most of the story, really. That's the kind of story in a nutshell. Um, but among it, uh, among this story, there's some amazingly powerful, amazingly controversial, and amazingly politically incorrect statements. Just the kind of thing that I absolutely love. I love a bit of controversy and political incorrectness. So let's see if we can get there before we end today. So let's try and set the scene so we know all about what's going on. So picture this. Uh, The disciples, so they're Jesus' closest friends from when he was on earth, they were on a mission. They're on a mission to tell everybody and anybody about how amazing Jesus is. Also, God was with them as they were doing this because as we can see, as they taught about Jesus by his spirit, God showed people that they were talking about him. And by that, I kind of mean that as they were talking and doing and telling people about Jesus, amazing things were happening as well. So miraculous signs and wonders were happening as the disciples taught and preached and proclaimed Jesus and his resurrection. So it wasn't just words that they heard, but they saw miracles in front of their very eyes Um, And the lives of the disciples as well were lived out in the midst of the people. They'd be able to see the genuineness and the kind of sincerity of the disciples too. So the scene for today is this. The disciples are on with their usual business. They're teaching, they're preaching all about Jesus. What they're teaching people about is the resurrection from the dead because of Jesus. They'd seen Jesus die and they'd seen him alive again. And now they're telling everybody about him. 
And not only that, but that people can follow Jesus into death. And by faith in his name, they can follow him out the other side into life. That's what they're teaching about. But as this is happening, the temple guards and the Sadducees come over and stop them. So the temple guards were kind of like security for the temple. The temple was a massive, massive place. They had their own kind of police force. In one of the corners of the temple, it had a bigger kind of chunk to the corner where the, the local army itself would live. So it was a massive place. Um, so that, yeah, the guards were like the security. They kept everything safe and in order. And the Sadducees were a bit different. So in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we see Jesus interact a lot with the Pharisees, the kind of teachers of the Jewish law. Um, but these are the Sadducees. And they're a bit different from the Pharisees. So the Sadducees, it turns out in my reading this week, they, they wouldn't really get along too well, I don't imagine, in Rotherham. Because they were really posh. Uh, they were the aristocrats. They were the kind of, you know, good bloodline knew how to hobnob with the right people. They were kind of right up there. So that's who the Sadducees were. They were a posh Jewish aristocrats. And they were often related to the high priests. So they had friends in literally high places. Um, in the Gospels we see Jesus coming up against the Pharisees because of his life and his teaching. In Acts we tend to see the disciples coming up against the Sadducees for a slightly different reason. Um, it is about their preaching the Pharisees, however, in the Gospels, they believed in a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees didn't. And this is why the disciples have got a problem with the Sadducees. So as soon as the disciples start teaching resurrection from the dead, the Pharisees, even though they disagree with them on some things, they, they believe in a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees didn't. So as soon as they start teaching resurrection from the dead, the disciples place themselves squarely in the crosshairs of the Sadducees. Just right for bumping off, is what they're thinking. So the disciples are preaching Jesus and his resurrection. The Sadducees get the temple guard to arrest Peter and John, and they bang them in the cells overnight. There's, however, a major problem for the Sadducees. Um, so if we just quickly look into verse 4, can we see the problem for them? It says, But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So they're saying that the church has grown to at least 5,000 men. The number of men now believing in Jesus is about 5,000. And if you include the women and children, goodness knows how big the kind of church is at this point. This popularity was going to make the authorities' job a little bit difficult. Um, how could they exercise their authority over Peter and John without losing the allegiance of the people? The people were really loving the preaching of Peter and John. They were like the first celebrity preachers. Um, people really liked them, but they're the Sadducees didn't. Anyway, the next day, this uh, thing called the Sanhedrin was assembled. It's like a council, like a religious court. And it was quite a powerful list of people that were present. It's high priests from the kind of past and the present and their family. And they would sit in a semicircle. Like that. They'd sit in a semicircle. And in the middle of the semicircle, they would put the accused person. And they would be interrogated by all these aristocrats who were really posh and had probably double-barreled names. Uh, and then they get to ask them one question. So verse 7, he says, um, that Peter and John brought before them and began questioning them. By what power or what name did you do this? That's the question that they ask 
Peter and John. At that point, Peter hits his kind of autopilot button. We've seen him do this previously in Acts. And he thinks, what time is it? Like always for Peter, so far in Acts, it is time for a sermon. And he goes for it. Uh, So follow with me uh, from verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So that's what Peter does. He says, who are you saying all this stuff about? And Peter goes for it. Um, you know, we, they don't really know what to do with Peter and John. Uh, not least of all because they proclaim this miracle in Jesus' name and the man who is healed is stood next to them. He's, he's stood next to them. So don't miss that. He was lame for how long? It says he was lame for 40 years. Now he's literally stood, stood, stood next to them. Okay? This lame man was stood next to them. So they can't really argue with that. Is it wrong to heal a crippled man? Obviously not. Is it wrong to preach Jesus' resurrection? Well, n- no, it isn't. But that's all that they've got against them. Um, it isn't a crime. So the only option, it turns out, I've seen some reading about this, their only option was essentially make it illegal, <coughs> tell them not to do it, and then if they do it again, they're doing something illegal. Does that make sense? Essentially, it's a bit like trespassing now. It's not illegal, but if the court says you're not allowed to go there, then you're in trouble next time. So, so that's what they do. Um, verse 18 to 22 it says then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus but Peter and John replied which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him you be the judges as for us we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard after further threats they let them go they could not decide how to punish them punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. So the man who was miraculously healed was really, really, really old, uh, over 40 years old. So I really, I really love Peter's reply here to the religious people. These religious judges, essentially he's, he's, they stood before a selection of religious judges. It's like a really unusual X factor. And Peter says to the judges, which is right in God's eyes? These are the people that should know the answer to this question. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. That's kind of what he says to them. Which is right in God's eyes? You should know. Listen to you or him? I think it's an absolutely great line. I wish I could be as quick-witted as Peter was in the moment. Um, And I think it's just a little bit funny as well. These are the the trained religious elite, uh, the judges of the court. And there's Peter in front of them, and he calls them to judge God's command. There's obviously only one side that they are allowed to come down on. So what they do, as all good, uh, kind religious people do, they threaten them, and they send them on their way. They couldn't do much more, because the people were praising God, because of what had happened 
the crippled man who was stood next to them. Okay, let's jump on. Yes, that's working. So, what happened in Jesus' lifetime when he was preaching and teaching was that the religious elite really didn't take to him very kindly. He was popular, he was effective, he welcomed anybody and everybody. Not necessarily what the religious people were known for. With the disciples now in the book of Acts, uh, we're seeing the same things. They've become really popular, they're being effective as people believe in Jesus, and some are healed, and they'll welcome anyone, and still the religious elite don't like them. This doesn't really tally with the religious elite in the time of Acts either. Uh, They're wanting to keep things the way they are. They're trying to keep them structured and ordered and organized and regimented, all nice, neat, straight lines. When the disciples increase in popularity, not only do the kind of Sadducees decrease slightly in popularity, but their kind of power (coughs) begins to fade. I'm not saying that they've got magic powers, the Sadducees, but their ability to rule and tell them what to do decreases, albeit ever so slightly, because the fewer people that are following them rather rather than Jesus, the fewer people they've got to exercise their authority over. So they only have power really over the Jewish community. And people are not turning kind of from Judaism and leaving it behind, but they're turning to what you could call a fulfilled Judaism. They see in Jesus the answers to all the questions that Judaism leaves unanswered. He kind of ties up all the threads that are left untied in Judaism. They see in Jesus, proclaimed by the disciples, everything that they've been waiting for, everything they've longed for, and it's better than they could have expected. Unfortunately for for the guys in the early church, this leads to chapters of Acts now devoted to persecution for the early church. We see kind of internal oppression, external oppression. We see one of the key disciples in a couple of chapters, he gets stoned to death. Um, Others get scattered to different countries nearby. It's really not the best start for anything. Um, they, They survive it, sorry to spoil the ending for you, and they keep on teaching about Jesus even when it's hard. From the start of Jesus' ministry, Uh, until now, there's a kind of power struggle going on. The problem is that the power in this world comes from the people who are at the top, the people who are in charge, call all the shots. We live in that world, we understand it, um, and we kind of expect it. The kingdom that Jesus teaches about, that his disciples are proclaiming, isn't the same as the one that we live in. In Jesus' kingdom, he says that the meek will inherit the earth, not the wealthy. He says the peacemakers will be called children of God, and the pure in heart will see God. Jesus' kingdom is one where love and truth are desired more than money and fame. In Jesus' kingdom, there's true equality. Jesus' kingdom brings in unity between people who would normally be poles apart. There's a great little bit um, bit of that in this passage. So, Acts uh, 4.13 and 14, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there, there was nothing that they could say. These men weren't the educated type. They weren't you know, powerful. They weren't like public school or Oxbridge candidates. These were the simple, working class, northern people. 
They'd have had big hands because they worked in practical jobs. They'd have had tan skin because they worked outside. They were in a nice office somewhere with an iron shirt. Um, these were the people who shouldn't know how to speak like they did. But yet they managed it. In fact, the word where it says they were unschooled ordinary men can mean two things. One, it can mean illiterate or unschooled in the Jewish law. Um, all the scholars say it probably means the second. They weren't officially schooled in the Jewish law. But, you know, it would have been interesting if they were entirely illiterate. Um, and they still managed to do this. I think there are two reasons that they managed to speak in a way that even startled the Jewish elite. So these are my two reasons. Reason number one, they were full of the Holy Spirit. And I say that because Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he also writes the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, he says these words. And I imagine when the disciples, when Peter and John are stood before the council, they're imagining these words of Jesus rattling round in their heads. Jesus says to his disciples, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. You could just imagine Jesus' words rattling around their heads at that point saying they're stood in front of a council of synagogue rulers um, and it's by the Holy Spirit that they're able to do this. So that's the first reason. One, they're full of the Holy Spirit. And two, they had been with Jesus. They'd understood his way of dealing with the Bible. They'd realised who he is and what that means. They'd understood him to be the one that the Bible is all about. And that radically changed things for them and their hearers. Okay. So, what does Peter say? With those few things in mind, let's jump back to the heart of the passage to see what Peter says. He says some really, truly quite shocking things. Some inflammatory statements, some things that people today uh, might hear and be squirming inside. So let's see if we feel a bit like that when we read them. So we're going to read from 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being, uh, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So firstly, I want you to see Peter's bravery in his confrontation of these leaders and elders. He says to these leaders and elders, these kind of religious types, he says, you acted contrary to the purposes of God. Why? Because you killed him. You can't really be acting much more contrary than that. He says, this Jesus, you killed him. So what kind of, why is that contrary to what God had planned? Um, well, because it ended up God having to raise Jesus from the dead. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus was always going to be betrayed by a friend, tried unjustly, and killed, um, tried unjustly by his people, sorry, killed at the hands of the Romans, but these God-fearing Jews should have recognised their Messiah. That's the one that God was going to send to rescue them from their rejection and disobedience of God their Father to a place uh, of once-for-all sacrifice where that was made by Jesus 
for them to know freedom from sin and rejection and rebellion of God so that they could become God's perfect children. This Jesus was a man who was walking around, he was teaching and preaching, he was healing, he was cleansing the lepers. But this man wasn't just a man. He was, as I think, uh, it was a guy called John Calvin, who's in a really old chap now, he's in the you know, 1500, something like that. Really old now. Um, he, he kind of coined the phrase God-man with a hyphen in the middle and no spaces. He says Jesus was the God-man. He is Emmanuel, the Bible calls him. God with us. Um, God from eternity past. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of Moses and of Aaron. says Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ isn't a surname uh, that Jesus had. Most likely his surname, if he'd had one, would have been Bar-Joseph. Because Bar means son of. And his dad was called Joseph. But we don't know for definite. But Christ is a title. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Does that make sense? Um, which is the saviour that is God come to earth so that we can meet with him and know him, have our sins dealt with by faith through his name. So Peter uses the Old Testament. He goes to the Old Testament, the stuff that, that his kind of counsel that stood in, sat in front of him would know pretty much off by heart. He says to them, Jesus is, and then he quotes from Psalm 118, one of the uh, Psalms in the Old Testament, and he says, the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So Peter takes this verse from the Psalms, and he says to these Jews, who would have known exactly where it came from, he says, you are the ones that God the Father has said has rejected his son. The most important stone in the building, you've got rid of him. He says, your faith your understanding of scripture is now wonky and unstable, unreliable. It's lacking the most important element. That is the cornerstone or the capstone. The stone that holds the whole thing together so it doesn't tumble and fall, leaving you with just a huge pile of rubble. So that stone that keeps everything working is missing. I don't know about you, but when I was uh, younger, we used to go every year to, to stay in Kent, where my great auntie used to live, and we used to go into London on the train from her house. You know, we'd stay for like three or four days and go in, and we'd go to the Science Museum. And I love the Science Museum. I'm really not into museums. Hannah still will take me around museums in other countries or wherever we are. She, she likes to look at things. I think there's too much reading to do. I like to play with things. But the Science Museum essentially had two bits where you could just play with stuff. And there was a bit where there was two side bits and a gap in the middle, and you could build a bridge, and there was kind of four or five pieces that were the same shape. Well, be four pieces that were the same shape and one that was a different shape. And you put a kind of mould in the bottom, you built the bridge up and you finally put the capstone in. And once you put that in, you could pull the mould out from underneath and you could walk along the bridge and it all held together really nicely. Peter says, Jesus is the capstone. Jesus is the one that holds the whole of the Bible, the whole of religion, the whole of the world together. So that if you take him out, you have pile of rubble. Peter tells them that Jesus is this stone. Not only are they missing him, but they killed him. God sent him, they rejected him, and they killed him. But then Peter kind of ramps up the problem. He, he makes a statement that will get you into serious hot water, I think, today too. A phrase that, a fa- that, phrase that flies in the face, that was a silly sentence, right, wasn't it? A phrase that flies in the face of the Sadducees in the passage 
and society in general today. One of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible is that no matter where you live in the world, no matter at what time you live, at some point the Bible is going to come down and contradict the culture that you live in. And the passage that we're reading today squarely cuts straight through ours. So let's try and set it up like this. We live in a postmodern world where what you kind of feel about something is, is almost more important than whether it's true or not. Everyone gets to decide their own truth or truths. Um, so who are you to claim that you have a greater claim on truth than anyone else? We prize tolerance above everything. We're a society that is tolerant of everything except for perceived intolerance. And then, boy, do we come down on it hard. Terribly ironic. So that's our world. The difference in the first century was that the religious leaders had their truth and they taught that that's what was true. So what does Peter say to them and us? Read verse 12 with me. Peter says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter says there is one way to get right with God. Not many. There is one understanding of sin because there's one understanding of salvation. Not many. There's one man and one name that has the power to save you. Not many. There is only one salvation, not many. That man, that way, that salvation is Jesus alone. For the early church, this is partly uh, what led them to the fierce persecution that follows here on in in Acts. It's because of their kind of unyielding grip on this truth that led to the deaths of the disciples, possibly apart from John, who was exiled on a Greek island. I've been thinking this week that it might happen to me if I carry on and how nice that could potentially be. Um, just left on a Greek island with some feta cheese. It would be lovely. Um, so I want to spend a few minutes here before we finish because this is going to be the battleground, I think, for us in our pluralistic society where all ideas, religions, religious philosophies, worldviews are all supposedly equally valuable and valid. It may not surprise you that I don't entirely agree with that. Um, it was the world of the early church too. There were all sorts of temples and shrines all over the place. Um, and I think that's the same today too. They just take a slightly different form. So, all religions lead to the same God. I'm guessing now, but I suppose that most of you may have heard that kind of phrase or idea before. I think some people say this, some people believe this, some religious people say this and believe this, some kind of non-religious people um, say it too. And I think they kind of say it because they, they think it's a really nice levelling phrase. If all religions lead to the same God, there should be no arguing between the different religions. If all religions ref uh, lead to the same God, then no one can say, I have a monopoly on the truth. Uh, no one gets to say in the argument, this is true, because everything is equally valid. If all religions lead to the same God kind of want to give a bit of a response to that idea now before we go on to see um, what we can do because of this passage. And I've been trying to think of a really polite way to phrase this, um, which is really not my strong point. 
So my response to the idea that all religions lead to the same God is this. I think whoever says it, I think that the idea is not only... Let me try and reword this now in my head. It doesn't only convey uh, potentially a sense of arrogance, but also of ignorance. I've tried to say it gently so that it sounds less offensive as if you just take the words and use them. So I think almost with the voice of kind of education behind it in a postmodern world, it sounds really levelling. It sounds like it elevates nobody and it leaves everybody on the kind of same level. But my problem is that I disagree. I think it elevates somebody in the situation. I think it elevates the person who says it to be able to say that they can kind of stand back from all these religious people who have their own ideas and they're the one who can see that they all lead to the same God. They're the one, essentially, who's got the kind of superior intellect to understand this that religious people can't see. You know, religious people are the slightly sillier ones who stand there saying, no, our way is the right way and the other ones say, no, our way is the right way. But somebody says, all religions lead to the same God because I can stand back and I can see what you're doing and I can see it all leads to the same place. Whereas you, you can't see this because you're in the mix of it at the same time. So I think instead of being levelling, it puts the person who says it up on a pedestal saying, I can see the whole picture that you can't. So that's the first one. That's my idea uh, of almost arrogance in the statement. The idea that the person who makes a statement can see things that others can't. So secondly, I said I thought there's a, an enormous an ignorance involved in the statement. Um, and this is what I mean. So for a person that says all religions lead to the same God, I think proves an ignorance of the religions. So don't walk two doors up the street and say to my Muslim friend who cuts my hair that all religions lead to the same God because he is absolutely certain that Jesus isn't God and that Allah is. Don't say to my Zen Buddhist friend, all religions lead to the same God, because he'll say to you, I'm not entirely sure that there is a God, and there probably isn't. Don't say to my Hindu friend that all religions lead to the same God, because he'll tell you they have 300,000 gods, and counting. You know, they're still going. Um, you may find gods from other religions within Hinduism, but they have many, many gods. Don't say to my Jehovah's Witness friend, all religions lead to the same God because they will talk to you for hours and hours about why it's only them that are saved, and they'll give you books and books on it, with really colourful pictures inside. Don't tell my Mormon friend that all religions lead to the same God, because they'll tell you that if they are a good Mormon in life, they will become a God themselves. And they don't want all religions to lead to the same God, obviously, because they they want to become one. The claim that all religions lead to the same God is ignorant of the fact of the individual religions. So I want to try and show you what the Bible says on this topic. And I think that we've got it here in this passage, really simply put by Peter. So it's verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I don't think Peter says all religions lead to the same God. I think Peter says, that's not working. There are all religions and there is one God. I'm not saying that Peter says all religions will lead to that one God. He says there is only one way to know one God, even though there are many religions in the world. 
see the difference? Peter says in this passage, kind of irrespective of who you are, where you come from, how old you are, what colour your skin is, what your accent is, uh, even if you're from the south or from Lancashire, there is only one way for you to get right with God. There aren't many different ways. There is one way, and that one way is open to all. So what does Peter say that one way is? Or maybe more correctly, who does Peter say that one way is? It's a one-word answer. He says the only way is Jesus. He says you cannot know God any other way. He says the only, only, only way is through Jesus. If Peter had been around now, he would tell you that truth isn't like Tesco's or any other supermarkets. You don't get to go in and pick the bits that you like and leave the bits that you don't. Peter says that truth is truth, whether you like it or not. Truth is truth. He says truth is Jesus. So what is it that Jesus offers us that no one else or nothing else does? If he is the truth and the only way to God, why is that? So... So as we head towards the end, the question is, why why Jesus? Well, why Jesus, not too wise. Uh, so the most important thing to share with you here is that Jesus is a person. He's not an idea or an ideology or a philosophy. I don't really understand the difference between those three, but there probably is one. Um, he's a person. There's not a God in the sky shouting at humans saying, do what I want or I'm going to crush you. The truth of the Bible is not that God wants us to be rule keepers, but God wants us to be part of his family. In practically all other religions or religious ideas, the idea is that we get right with God um, by doing exactly what he wants. And hopefully we'll do more good things than we do bad things. And that tips the scales in our favour, and then that God will have to accept us. Here's the problem. Some people think that Christianity is exactly the same. If you keep all the Ten Commandments and don't break all the Ten Commandments, then maybe God will accept you because you've done the right thing. That's not what Christianity is about at all. In Christianity, the truth is, the Bible tells us that we're in a hopeless place of being lost entirely from God the Father. A place where we have rebelled against him and we have rejected him. A place where we deserve to be separated from God for all eternity because of what we've rejected. We've rejected an eternal place in God's family, a place of love and kindness and grace and mercy and total provision and joy and peace, a place where we would be truly human. We would understand what it would mean to live out our lives to the absolute full. The Bible says that is what we have rejected when we reject God. So God creates humans, the Bible teaches, into a state of perfection with him. That is God's plan A, perfect relationship with him for humans. And the God of the Bible is a God who is Trinity. So even when the humans leave him at the beginning of the story of the Bible, he wasn't alone. From eternity past to eternity future, uh, God has never and will never be alone. There's God the Father, the Son and the Spirit, and they live in a perfect community together. So Jesus is God's son who came to earth. He took on flesh and blood like you and me. And he lived the life of one that was truly human. 
He lived the life that Adam, the first man in the Bible, should have lived but didn't. And he lives the life that we should have lived but haven't. He was taken, he was tortured and crucified when he hadn't done anything wrong. Um, anything that meant he deserved even to die. However, it was in that place that, that God the Father's anger and wrath that we deserved because we rejected him was, was placed on and taken by Jesus. At the cross, Jesus takes our place and suffers the agony of separation from God the Father. He dies and he's buried. God the Father raises him up from the grave. And this is what the disciples spent the night in prison for, um, by saying that God brought Jesus back to life. They went to prison for the night. In doing so, God shows that his anger and his wrath against our rejection is all dealt with in Jesus. And then, there's a little bit more, God the Holy Spirit starts to make people alive again. And I don't mean that God the Holy Spirit starts working in graveyards, pulling people up from six feet under. But he starts working in the lives of normal people. The Bible says that if we don't know God, then we're spiritually dead. But by God the Holy Spirit, when we read, when we hear about Jesus, who is God the Son, he starts to work in our hearts and our minds by showing us the truth of what he said. And then we're called to respond to him by faith. And if we do that, the result is that God works in our lives by the power of his Spirit through Jesus so that we're made right with the Father, we're welcomed into his family as sons and daughters and we're made alive again spiritually. If you don't know Jesus and you're here today, I want to ask you to please respond by faith in Jesus. Be made right with God the Father and understand gradually what it means to live as true human beings. And if you do that, please tell us. You'd make us the happiest people ever. If you already know Jesus here, I want to encourage you that there is no doubt whatsoever about your position with God. If you know Jesus, if you've had your sins forgiven, you are definitely saved, you are definitely part of his family, you are a son or daughter of God, and there is no better reason to rejoice than that. If you're not kind of sure where you stand with God, I'll ask you this question. What do you think of Jesus? If you believe that he's God come in the flesh to save you from your sins, and rejection of God and you've placed your faith in him alone and then you belong to him if not then you're not if you're unsure grab somebody afterwards and have a chat to them about it see if they can help so lastly as Jesus family here in Rotherham I want to encourage you to pray for and believe that God the Holy Spirit is at work in you making you more like Jesus and that you take the opportunities to share Jesus with people that you know. Peter, in this passage, he stood up before a legal council and told them, uh, who told him he couldn't stand up for Jesus. He chose to obey God rather than men. I want to encourage you to do the same. Choose to speak about Jesus to people. God has given us opportunities to do this with our friends and our co-workers. Uh, pray for the boldness to take the opportunities God gives us. And absolutely lastly, let me encourage you to rejoice together as we sing because of what Jesus has done in bringing us to know God the Father by God the Holy Spirit. So let's pray and then we'll sing.
Father, I thank you that salvation is found in no one else, that there is only one name, and it is only through Jesus that we can be saved. Father, I thank you that that is just such an amazing truth. Father, I thank you that instead of us trying to make ourselves right with you, you made a world where we knew you, we had a perfect relationship with you, and we rejected it, and you have made the way possible. It's nothing about what we can do or what we should do or what we might be able to do. You say that we can't do it, but you can. Father, I thank you that in Jesus you've made it possible for us to know and love you. Father, I thank you that by your spirit you can work in us, that you can make us alive again spiritually. You can make us uh, into your sons and daughters. Father, I pray that you would help us to to understand that more and more. You'd help us to, to really see who Jesus is more and more. Father, I pray that you'd help us to rejoice and delight in knowing Jesus more and more too. Father, I pray that you would grow our church family with people who meet Jesus. Father, I thank you that your gospel is powerful and amazing. And I pray that we would see people come to know you through the work of your spirit and the preached word and the shared word of people with their families and friends, people they work with and and children and young people. Father, we pray that the church family would grow uh, by the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in and through the good name of Jesus. Amen.